Support for That Trippy Show comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it. Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash trippy. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash trippy. Hey, everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. This is going to be a fun one. For the past several months, our friends at the Lincoln Democracy Institute have been doing a massive study about democracy. Massive, and we'll get to that. And partisanship. And what are the roots of extremism? What can we all do about it? How can we break people out of their silos and break the MAGA fever? And what are the tools the pro-democracy coalition and what are the tools the pro-democracy coalition can use to win in 2024 and beyond? Our friend, Trig V. Olson, among others, has been putting together a toolkit based on their survey data, which is pretty impressive and insightful. It gives you a lot of insight as to why and how this is happening and what we can do. So we wanted to have him on to discuss. Trigvi, welcome back. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's always good. Alex, where do you want to start, man? Well, Trigvi, I think the key word at the top was massive. Mm-hmm. When you told us initially what kind of the methodology on this sucker was, we it, our, our eyes kind of kind of rolled a little bit. Talk to us really about the background for this, how it came to be, and what you actually did. Yeah, so, you know, the vision always was to try and understand and quantify how much extremism um, and and even radicalization was occurring within the electorate. Um, And um, part of that goes back to survey work that I was involved in indirectly back after 9-11, where there was a lot of conversations about how do we understand through quantitative research, you know, why there were Muslim men in the Middle East who were so angry. And so I knew from other work that I had done, I had been presenting on some of my experiences around the world, that there really had not been any definitive study done of how much extremism and radicalization existed in the electorate. And we, when I saw one-sixth, and I think you guys understand this because you've worked around the world too, you saw the same things. What I saw was need, network, and narrative. Need, come to Washington, D.C., the election's been stolen. Network, you are a part of a bunch of patriotic Americans who are here to defend our nation. Narrative. We're going to walk down to the Capitol, trial by combat. And those are the foundations of people who are radicalized, and people who are radicalized have a propensity for violence. So I wanted to understand that because there really wasn't data, and that's what we set out to do. But that requires a massive survey of a lot of people, in this case 17,000, and it requires a long instrument. And the instrument is the survey script. And depending on who you were and where you were, you know, we were engaging with you on the internet for up to 42 minutes. So 
So for context and Trippy, you can kind of weigh in as to why that's massive. Generally, a sample size on even a national poll might not go higher than like 1,500 or 2,000. And we're talking like a 15-minute poll. So this is huge, right? Absolutely. I mean, you don't you don't get these kind of uh, sample sizes. I don't think I've ever seen one this big, uh, to be honest with you. To have people engaged for that long, for, you know, 40, 45 minutes is also pretty incredible. Uh, and, but you're more incredible than the sample size and the length of the questionnaire are some of your, what even I, who, as you said, you know, we, Alex and I have both been involved around the, the world and, and, you know, and actually, you know, been on the ground trying to build democratic mov movements in the middle of wars and, you know, crazy places where all kinds of, of different factions are, uh, are, are, you know, sort of creating division and, uh, and, uh, you know, enemies on all sides kind of thing. But your findings here in America, um, the numbers are just stunning, even to, even to me. I mean, I knew they were, I, we all knew how big this seems to be much bigger than we all thought, you know, in 2016, obviously, but, but it's pretty stunning. Uh, what are the, the things that you, you saw right off the bat? Yeah. So, and just so people understand the reason that, that we had to have a sample size that big was because we knew that there would be small numbers on the other end. And so the, the largeness of the sample size was a result that if 10%, you know, I was thinking going in, if 10% of the people are, are radicalized to have a relevant sample of those people where you can draw inferences, who are they? What are the fears that they have? All these kinds of things. You had to have a sample size that was that big. And you guys understood that right away, which I appreciate. I mean, the first thing that jumps out in the data, and, and Joe, we, you and I and Alex have had this conversation, and I've shared it with some other people that we know from work around the world who really have expertise in this, right? And we're working on it in a lot of places. The first thing that jumps out is, you know, a quarter of Americans currently fit all four steps to political extremism. In other words, they're experiencing high levels of psychological distress. Um, they're accepting cognitively simplistic answers. They are are experiencing overconfidence in those answers because they they don't want to even in the face of all of facts that are indisputable they don't want to give up what's solving their distress and then last they're intolerant of those who don't share their views and that's a quarter now of those four steps you have another group 37% of americans who accept three of the four one of which is they're intolerant towards people who don't share their views so they're sort of emerging extremists, and and we're about to go into an election cycle. In fact, we're already in it, where we're seeing an awful lot of demonization, particularly on the right. And that's Donald Trump's shtick. That is Ron DeSantis' shtick. Demonization of the other side. And that is part of the cycle of extremism. So you have, on the, on the micro level, individuals who are experiencing full-on extremism or are close to it, and we're going into an election cycle where we are going to see several of the steps that occur in a cycle of political extremism. And, and the truth of the matter is, you know, one of the things we've talked about this offline, what the data has quantified is what is unique about this moment in American history, maybe in the last 150 years, is we're in a cycle of political extremism. And that 
is an incredibly dangerous thing. And we've now quantified that. Before, it was just the hunch. We now know this yeah. with data. And that is a big deal. Yeah. And the thing that shocked me was, you know, when you start this thing out is nearly half of American registered voters view those not sharing their politics as untrustworthy enemies. The word enemies over, you know, nearly half of Americans feel that way and have little faith in the free, freeness or fairness of elections. It's like that's nearly half the country, people, registered voters, at least, um, which is just uh, when you layer on what you just said about, you know, uh, you know, a quarter of Americans fully meet all four stages of political extremism and another third or basically exhibiting three of the four is just, uh, it, w again, with that with that untrustworthy enemies thing of half the country or nearly half, you can just, uh, we all know that that's happening, but I think to quantify it this way, this report of yours is, is pretty important. Yeah, I mean, it's it, 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 one of the things, as you know, because I obviously shared with you the report that will be coming out, because I knew you'd have you guys would have really unique perspectives. In some ways, you guys know both the po the survey research end, and then you know the extremist demand, which was really helpful to me. When I was looking at intolerance, you know, going into this, the way that typically you, at least from what I knew, that you would try and understand intolerance is asking questions of people about their tolerance to different groups or 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 you know, different groups, basically, or different kinds of people, demographic, whatever. What I found in the US, and to some degree, part of the challenge of this is it's really uncharted territory to have this kind of stuff happening in a in an established democracy, let alone the oldest democracy in the world. It, it was unique to me because I, I asked the questions about intolerance of those who are different, and there, there is this segment of Americans who are intolerant to those who are different. And then there's a separate segment that is tolerant of others and differences, right? But they are totally distrusting of those who don't share their values, which that, to me, if you view somebody as an enemy, you're certainly intolerant, but it's kind of interesting. And I think that is one place where there is some hope. We do have these people that don't trust the people on the other side in the process, but at least they don't, they're not hating on everybody who's different than them. And, and yeah, so well, they're, they're intolerant of the intolerant. Correct. correct. But that's a divide. That's also a divider then, uh, is what you're, yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. And really one of the things that I ended up having to do in the data and you see this, you're seeing this play out in real time on the Republican in the, how the jockeying is going on in the Republican primary already. What you ended up is uh, four quadrants, right? You have people who are tolerant and trusting. You have people who are intolerant and trusting. You have people who are tolerant. And uh, so you have each of those, right? The four quadrants. So it would be right. tolerant and trusting, <laughs> intolerant and trusting, tolerant and distrusting, intolerant and distrusting. Obviously, the people who are intolerant and distrusting are the most likely to be it, they're almost all extremists and they're more likely to be radicalized. The people who are tolerant and trusting are sort of your traditional, on the, in the Republican primary, they'd be the kind of the traditional Republicans, right? They also tend to be some of the Bannon line people who are leaving the party. Um, 
But it's interesting because I, one of the things that jumps out on the Republican side is part of the reason Donald Trump's so tough to beat is those tolerant and trusting liked his policies when he was president and are hanging with them. And the intolerant and they don't and, care whether he actually did them or not. Right. Yeah. And that's they part don't. of the trusting part. Correct. Yeah. And the intolerant and distrusting, of course, are totally with him. So there's really and they comprise about more than half of the Republican electorate, which is why there's no space for DeSantis or Pence or anybody else, because if you try and be the guy of the tolerant and trusting, there's not enough votes there. If you try and do it, and that's what Mike Pence or some Mickey Haley or whoever are trying to do, if you try and go the other way and be the intolerant, distrusting guy, which is what Ron DeSantis is doing, first of all, you're like new Coke to Donald Trump's real Coke. And second... <laughs> There just isn't enough space, even if you occupied that, to win the whole thing, although it might get you to 30%, right? So you can maybe win in a multi-way field, but you're never going to take all the people from Trump. So so what is your, how does that break out? Um, or is there any differences within the parties? I mean, in other words, you said that 50%, you know, Republicans are already pretty much there, right? Mm -hmm. How's that play out among Democrats, you know, being extremist or emerging extremists and even among, you know, independents? Is there any anything of note? So that, the that levels, here's the, looking? yeah, there, there's an important distinction here. So I, and I want to, I want to say a caveat, political extremism isn't necessarily abnormal in a democracy, right? Things right. that are seen as extremist. The civil rights movement was seen as extremist. It made America better. Universal suffrage was seen as extremist. It made America better. The marriage equality movement and gay rights was seen as extremist. It's made America better because that extremism worked its way into the partisan and then became places around which we could form consensus and, and reach something that's the common good. What's unhealthy is when extremism starts morphing into radicalization and extremism around contrived grievances is, is accepted. On the left, the interesting thing is there is a lot of distrust towards the right. And, you know, I mean, Donald Trump in particular, and certainly there should be after what happened on 1-6. There is also, to a degree, amongst what I call the traditional, and you guys know what we built this thing called the political tolerance spectrum, the there's the intolerant traditional left and there's the intolerant traditional right. I do not think they are abnormal necessarily in our democracy. There's actually a little bit more distrust and intolerance on the left, but, and this is a huge but, radicalization, which is a far bigger threat and is a direct threat to our democracy because it's what led to 1-6, about 13% of Americans fit all three of those pieces, need network and narrative, which lead to can lead to violence. It's about 10% on the right, it's about 3% on the left. And what's, what's I think there's always been people who are radicalized probably in American democracy, but you've never had a situation where more than a quarter of a major party, in this case, on the right, the Republican Party, has people who are full-on radicalized. And that is, that is a real threat. I mean, these are people who meet definitions that of radicalization that I think if they were from somewhere else, you know, like Homeland Security would really be wondering, do we let the, give these people visas to come? Because it's a direct threat. They, they think that the government needs to be overthrown. 
And and of course, Trump's fueling that with correct. And, and that's you know, the every danger. Day. And DeSantis isn't that far behind him. <laughs> I think it. DeSantis, what DeSantis is doing is is it's less of a direct threat in the moment, but it's more toxic because he is seeding intolerance towards others in a in a really, really illiberal and bad way. What you, when you look at his attacks on Disney and why, when you look at his how he talks about the 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 LBGT plus community in Florida. When you look at um, immigrants and people who are different, in many ways, Ron DeSantis is taking what Trump started and and throwing gas on that fire in a really bad way. So so Trigby, how did how did we get here? I mean, did it? Did, I mean, did you get into you know, the factors that are that are actually, you know, we're here in this moment now. Why? How uh, did you did the findings give us any insight, give you any insight as to to how we got here? So that that is a great question. And you have the advantage of of asking me this question online after having asked it to me offline <laughs> about a week ago. <laughs> I have thought about it, Joe. So. If you think about extremism, it starts with polarization, right? And that isn't necessarily right. extremist, but the cycle of political extremism starts with polarization of societies. I think that's been going on for a while, right? Like, you, you know, and on the right, do you trace it back to Newt Gingrich, um, who clearly has probably done as much as anyone to divide America and our politics? Or does it go back further to Reagan and Goldwater and you know, you and I could have differences of opinion because, you know, I was in seventh grade dropping lit for Reagan. Well, I guess I was 16 and you were running Walter Mondale's campaign. And but in 80, I was doing Kennedy, man. OK, <laughs> oh, yeah, Carter. that's true. In 80, in 80, you were doing Kennedy. In 84, you were doing I, Walter Yeah, Mondale. no, I was one of these crazy progressive. I mean, hey. I, I, I was and then, you know, then worked for Mondale and. Uh, but but you're right. We were we yeah, were totally I mean, I, looking but, at this through different lenses. Here's the thing: like Ronald Reagan and Walter Mondale, I guarantee you were two guys who probably at some point shared a beer and a bunch of tales, and and you know they disagreed on stuff, but didn't mean that 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 they were intolerant of each other or even distrusting. No. Really? Yeah. No. No. I, I, working for Fritz, the guy was everything but that. Yeah, he wanted to reach across, talk, you know, uh, yeah, disagree about stuff, but they they both really did care about democracy and the the future of the country. And I don't think you know there, I don't know if there were guardrails, whatever, but it, they you didn't need them because uh, I don't think either one of them, uh, Reagan or Mondale, uh, harbored that kind of you know the other side's the enemy and they've got to be destroyed kind of stuff. No. Fritz for sure was and, far. And away here's from the that. other thing about that period is yeah you know go back to Ted Kennedy right he was not trying to embrace radicals within the Democrat Party there probably right. was a small yeah, exactly. fringe that was and Ronald Reagan was through the John Birchers out of the Republican Party right so right you know. Um, so for all of the rhetoric and the rest of it, now that isn't happening on the right today. In fact, they're embracing it, and that's what's different. To trace the roots of where polarization really started to occur, 
You know, I think, and one of the things I talk about and we we have done with this research, and as you guys know, this first chapter is on, is really is revelations. Here's how bad it is with extremism. And then we have some additional chapters. But one of the things that we have a little section on in this is there are three media ecosystems in the U.S. today. There is the traditional media ecosystem that comprises most of the electorate, including the left, including the, the far left. But people on the far left, well, they may gravitate more towards Rachel Maddow or Joy Reid or shows like that. They also watch the nightly news on ABC or NBC, CBS, so, and they read the New York Times and whatever. Um, in the center, they rely primarily on things like Good Morning America, but they're all in this traditional ecosystem. And that, that comprises like 58% of Americans. Um, there is another ecosystem that is what I call the Fox News ecosystem. And there's a lot of talk about the Fox News ecosystem in, in amongst you know operatives and others. The interesting thing, the Fox News ecosystem, on the right, there's this Fox News ecosystem. There's the people who watch Brett Baer, who maybe watch The Five, but they also watch nightly news. They also listen to content that's that's alternative perspectives. And they're about you know, 20 percentage of the population. And then you have what I call the new right media ecosystem. And therein lies the issue. And the people in the new right media ecosystem tend to watch, if they watch Fox, it's the primetime lineup. It's Tucker, it's Hannity, it's Laura. They listen to a lot of talk radio, but they're also listening to OANN. They're listening to Dan Bongino's podcast. They're maybe listening to Joe Rogan or a bunch of other sources that are that are really closed. And one of the fascinating things in the data is, and you know this, the people who are most likely to say all their friends share their political views are the people that are in that new right media ecosystem. And one of the things that comes out of this research that I think is really important for people who are covering it in the media who are listening to this, to people who are operatives who listen to this, and just activists who want to understand, communicating to those people who all share the same news sources and who all their friends do. So when they go to church on Sunday and they sit around Fellowship Hall afterwards drinking coffee, everybody is on the same page is really, really hard and complicated because breaking into that is a challenge, to say the least. Support for That Trippy Show comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it, Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash trippy. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash trippy. One thing while we're on the media that I wanted to get to is, and, and again, we'll, this is, by the way, this is probably part one. I'll say if we'll probably have, I know this is like the first part. There's a lot of chapters coming on this trivia, as you know. <laughs> but one thing I wanted to make sure we got to is the idea of where people see the media ecosystem and, and where it where it is. It's not 
in 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 your findings, it's essentially three ecosystems. Mm-hmm. There's like the new you call it new right extremist media, like the Dan Bongino's, the really I mean the really extreme stuff. You've got your Fox News, and then you've got traditional, like mm-hmm. which I, I guess in, is like your CNN, even MSNBC. There isn't really any kind of anything farther to the left than what you'd mm-hmm. consider quote unquote traditional media, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, it was fascinating to me having, you know, worked around the world on some of these things. It's fascinating to me that there is no new left media ecosystem. And honestly, as this plays out and what people have to understand is we have two two things going on simultaneously. We have to win elections and keep the liberal actors, autocratic wannabe actors out of office. But that is that is really band-aids because we have to also solve what we have as as we have to break the cycle of extremism. And so winning elections is part of that. One of the warning signs, and I talk about this in the in the in the document, is one of the warning signs would be if a new left media ecosystem were start to that that is pushing need network and narrative were start to arise. And um, right now, on the left, as is true on the right, there there is a feeling of need that the country is under an attack from the far right. Now it happens to be a real grievance, I think, because we saw what happened on one six. So it's not like it isn't legitimate. What there isn't is network and narrative. I think really, if you think about what Tucker Carlson has been and Fox News primetime in a way, it's the gateway drug to full-fledged extremism and radicalization, I'm right. That is what it is. And I, I, I'll be honest, I didn't come up with that. A mutual friend of ours, um, who you know, Joe, I don't want to say the name, but like who literally was point person, one of the point people after 9-11 and studying this is the person who said that when they looked at the data. They're like, you're, you're confirming what I've always viewed as my worst nightmare that probably wasn't true, that that has become a gateway to this. Right. Which is which is what we don't have on the left. When you say new left extremist media, yeah, ecosystem, they don't, they, it, it would be. The, we're not talking about like Resolute Square uh, and others who are trying to create a pro-democracy um, media that, that, that that's that's for trying to shake up the rights media. It's not it's not about that. No. It's about fanning extreme radicalized and, and radicalized. Stuff, yeah, and and that's what I'm saying. You can like MSNBC or not, don't like it, but they're not doing that the way Fox does or Tucker Carlson does, whether he's on Twitter or Fox. Um, and they're I mean, not you know, OANN, right? Like, yeah, you, you, and but people on the right, like they try and use that, but you can't say. Right. I mean, I don't know what would be the the most, you know, in terms of in terms of message. I don't know what would be the furthest left of the MSNBC lineup, right? But you can't compare that at all. It's within the normal bell curve of what democracy should have. It might be extremist, but but it's typically built around grievances that are real to the people that are experiencing them. And so 
that is completely different from what you have going on on the right. Now, m might there be some podcasts and stuff in the underbelly of the internet that's that's selling to the really, really far left? Yeah, but they have no mainstream traction. The problem is the new media left, I mean, new media right extremist ecosystem has full-on traction and has 14, 15%, and they have a feeder system from Fox's primetime lineup, the Tuckers, the Jesse Waters, the Loras, the Shawns that are feeding that extremist. And, and, and now you even have Twitter. Yeah. You know, some of that's on Twitter now with Tucker and others. Uh, what, what, what I think, though, is it seems to me the right, the extreme right ecosystem and its candidates are kind of, you know, it's all driven by their ability to stoke fear and anger. And is that, is, is it because, that's what I'm saying, is there some divergence in the media, in the, the, the ecosystems where that's not, that, that I'm certain people are obviously angry about what happened on January 6th and they want accountability. They'd love to see, you know, indictments, whatever. And they're angry that they're not seeing that, but there's no, there's no constant stoking of that fear saying we've got to storm the Capitol. You know I mean? That you see on, on the right. Is it, did you see any of that, um, that sort of diverging of fears or something in, in this study or, you, you know, am, am I off base there? No. So one of the things that we did in the study, as you know, we gave respondents 40 statements of fears. Okay. Everything from the U.S. being pulled into a nuclear exchange with China or Russia to somebody being negatively in, in my family being impacted by the Supreme Court taking away rights to whatever. The number one fear, interestingly, in America is shared that's shared by all Americans. And it's a high fear. And we asked people to score from zero to 100. The average score was 74 for corrupt or incompetent officials being elected or appointed to high positions in government. Republicans, Democrats, independents, extremists, non-extremists, men, women, everybody, that's the biggest fear. The problem is that the definition of who those people are is completely contingent, and this is polarization, completely contingent on what your partisan leanings tend to be. And one of the mistakes I think that gets made in understanding the difference between what I call the game we know, which is elections, and the game we're in, which is fighting a cycle of political extremism, is that we assume in the game we know, and Joe and I, you know, Joe, you and I have made, and Alex, we've made a living in understanding this. You know, elections are about issues and they're about, you know, they're really oftentimes, and, and they should be, should traditionally be about issues and vision. Um, what the the extremist cycle game is about is narratives of fears. And in covering this, and I hear this a lot on the left, and and I uh, I think they they miss that the right for a long time has been building narratives. They don't care about issues. And they build narratives around fears. And I was listening to a, a prominent show on the left with smart people who I like and know, and they were falling into the trap of saying, you know, the Biden crime syndicate messaging of Trump and DeSantis and wokeness isn't even one of the top issues for voters. It is, and that's true. It isn't in our survey either. But 
it's a narrative. And it's a narrative that is built on, uh, in the case of the supposed Biden crime family syndicate, of creating mutual equivalence with what Donald Trump and the right is doing, the kleptocracy stuff. The wokeness and, you know, transgender athletes winning in women's sports and all of that, I don't know. I my daughters play sports. I haven't seen any of that, but you know, maybe maybe it is happening everywhere. I don't think so though. But it's a real fear for those people, right? Like it's it's an attack on values. It's it's something that's a high fear. In fact, wokeness is like the third biggest fear amongst Republicans. What's being done with that is building narratives and and it's it is a threat in the game we know in the sense that as you as we all know and as chapter 2 will cover there's this set of voters who are republicans who have been voting democracy in the key states and they from the right the best way to get them to stay home or to even vote their partisan leanings would be to create a moral equivalency between Joe Biden and Donald Trump or between republicans and democrats and so while these issues don't poll well, we have to understand that that in the game we're in and in a cycle of extremism, they are trying to build narratives around fears, not talk about issues. Issues are only a means to an end. Fears are what they use. So is that where you see, I'm sorry, so Trey, is that where you see like on a gradient scale, you know, going across the spectrum on... You, you know, on, on on something like, uh, you know, climate change mm-hmm. or transgender, you know, where on one side, it's like, you know, a, a 78 on the other side, it's a four. Correct. You know, is it, is it, you know, as you get, as you move across the right to left. Yeah. And so the, those fears, the fears are, are even on the things that we, that people might say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's not a big enough me- number to matter. It, it, it's a big fear. A bigger fear on the right, not so much a fear on the left, and therefore, it kind of doesn't get answered, and it just keeps the narrative. They keep building that narrative. Is that what you're you're saying? Exactly. And I'll give you give you a couple examples. So we built this this thing called the political intolerance or the political tolerance spectrum, and it it really is an attempt to take a a, a political spectrum and apply it to tolerance versus intolerance to extremism. And on the left, the most uh, the furthest left group is what what we call the culturally uh, intolerant left, culturally reformist intolerant left. They're about 7% of all voters. If you look at an issue like climate change, their average score from zero to 100, not, not afraid at all to terrify, is up in the 80s on climate change. The group on the right, which is about 11% that's most radicalized, is the highly intolerant mega right. They're they're almost universally extremists, and nearly half are radicalized, according to our definitions. When they're asked about climate change, it's in the single digits. The inverse of that is restriction of gun rights. (laughs) For the culturally reformist intolerant left, it's in the single digits. For the right, it's up in the 90s. (laughs) So, like, it's it's it is it's two completely different ecosystems. The interesting thing, Joe, is, and I don't know if you've ever seen anything like this in a survey. One of the most interesting pieces is I took the question that we asked, where the two two alternatives were um, 
using gender neutral pronouns is a sign of respect for people in the LBGT community and should be used in daily conversations as a sign of respect. Two, the use of gender neutral pronouns is woke political correctness on steroids. And it's not something that I would do. So, you know, it's plus five on one side to plus five on the other. If you lay that up against age, and this is one of the things that's going on here. There are two, there's a generational battle in all of this. If you lay that up against age, people who are 18 are plus five on it's a sign of respect for the LGBT community. The oldest people in the survey are a plus five on its woke political correctness. And it literally goes as a U down to zero at, at about age 44. And, and it's interesting to me because when I dug into that a little deeper, the people in their 40s who are most likely to, to be zero, they don't know which way to go on it, tend to be parents of kids who are teenagers. And I think about myself in that issue. I, my daughters have friends who use gender neutral pronouns. I try my best to, as a respect to my daughters and to them, to use them. But it's so counterintuitive to me, and the English major in me gets really mixed up with the language part of it. And, and, and what I'm getting to is, so we have these partisan issues, but we also have these issues that are and fears that are a result of those people who are post-89, when the Soviet Union fell apart, they remember it. You know, so they were like nine or 10, and those who are pre. And one of the central groups, they are the central groups as we look forward to the 2024 election. There are what I call the Wolverine conservatives after Red Dawn. They're the they're Gen Xers like me who came of age during Reagan and know that the Russians do the kind of stuff they're doing in Ukraine and always have. And Reagan taught us that we stand up to them. They have peace through strength, all the rest, right? And there is a cognitive dissonance for them, and that is why they vote for Joe Biden, not for Donald Trump, who says he's a genius. They help decide. The other group is, quite frankly, girl dads. And girl dads tend to be millennials with daughters. And I can't prove this, and I'd, I hopefully will be able to do further research on this, but I suspect that what that is about is that a lot of them are, they're conservatives, they're Republicans, but they came of age believing that and became conservatives and Republicans because they didn't want government telling them what to do. And they, the light has turned on in their head that Greg Abbott or Ron DeSantis telling their daughters that they cannot seek medical, medical procedures is as antithetical to what why they became conservatives as somebody on the left telling them what they can and can't do. And and therein lies the the interesting piece of all of this. We break extremism and we win this battle by finding the places where there's cognitive dissonance and driving it into these people that there are things that they share or that what they're hearing from the illiberal extremist wings or the radicalized wings, those need networks and narratives are incongruent with who they are as people.
and what they believe. Well, that's that's actually where I wanted to go to 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 you know, as we go over time here was to get to uh, at least a question or two about which you just hit on a little bit. How the hell do we get out of this? How do we? Is that what we need to start to do? What you just laid out. I mean, can you expand on that a little bit here as we're getting close to the end of the show? Yeah, I mean, as you know, and Alex and I spend a disproportionate part of our life when we're having conversations focusing on this. In the short run, in the near term, through the elections, it really is focused on those voters, particularly in key states, and how do you communicate with them messaging that explains the cognitive dissonance to them. And for example, in my native state of Wisconsin, right, the people who are going to decide if Joe Biden or Donald Trump is the next president of the United States, and they will play an essential role, are people who voted for, for Tony Evers, the Democrat candidate for governor, and Ron Johnson. And you couldn't get to a different place in terms of politics. What those people who sit on, on that line, what we call the Bannon line, who are not extremists and who are in the center, communicating to them has to be done in a way that they understand two things, that, that Donald Trump or whoever, Ron DeSantis, whatever, that, that their values and what they're saying is, is not congruent with who these people are and what they believe. At the same time, though, what is going to be done on the right is an attempt to build narratives of, of mutual equivalence, like I was talking about. They're going to try and say Biden's too old, even though Donald Trump is old. Biden is frail. He's not cognitively there. Well, I mean, for God's sakes, Donald Trump couldn't pass person, woman, man, camera, TV in 2020. He's not in a better place now. But they're going to try and create these mutual equivalences to cloud the issue. Success for us in both the short term and the long term really requires sustained effort starting with those people and for all of us to remember those of us who are not extremists are still the majority in this country but we have to rally together and and you know nothing might be a better example of this than the three of us on here cuz Politically, right? Like you alluded to, Joe, you were working for Ted Kennedy in the left when I was a kid out dropping lit for Ronald Reagan on the right. Yeah, absolutely. But on this stuff, we're lock stock. And the more we've yeah. all gotten to know each other, I mean, we're all friends, like good friends, <laughs> like hang out on vacation yeah. friends, <laughs> right? With our families. Yeah, yeah absolutely, it, man. It, yeah, and politics true. is not the beginning of the end. Uh, you know, my my daughter's getting to meet Joe Trippi and my older one asking you questions because, you know, she's kind of a political. Well, she wants to be a reporter. So interviewing Joe Trippi over dinner was something that was cool for her. But like that, we've got to make sure that people don't forget that we're the majority. And I will say Mike Pence last night, I, I don't think he gets it, but he did say something that's true. The further you get out of Washington, D.C., the more you get. Politics doesn't divide most of us. He says it doesn't divide all of us, but it doesn't divide most of us. And we just have to find the way together and say, all right, we, we disagree and communicate that and remember that because that is going to be central to beating it. But we've also got to, we've got to have a sustained effort 
to push back on this stuff. Because if we don't, they're not going to stop coming. And the other thing I would say is that needs to be remembered by those who are covering this and those who are in the game is that if Donald Trump didn't accept the outcome of the 2020 election, he's not going to accept the outcome of the 2024 election. And you don't need to be have a PhD in logic to understand that that means that he isn't really playing the game we know. He doesn't he isn't playing the democratic election game. He's playing the game we're in. The zero sum cycle of extremist game. The election is just a means to an end to claim either I won the election, hence I'm president, or the election was a fraud, I am the president. And that that does get to, I think, um, the real the the real problem here is that the radicalization isn't stopped. It's going. It's ongoing with Trump, with DeSantis, um, with the 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 far right uh, extremist media network. If you already have a quarter who are at all four points of the extreme and another, you know, 37 percent of the Republican Party, uh, you know, already at three and you're trying to get them to DEFCON four on the, you know, on the anger, fear, um, extreme radicalization scale, that's going to keep happening in this cycle. I mean, it's not going to stop at 25. It's it, you look at all the pieces and in your study, it looks like that that's going to grow, which I guess me, you know, again, gets to your point, um, you know, that we have, you know, and it's something you've talked to me about, about how are people out there support continues to buy time for democratic forces, you know, obstruct the cycle of extremism or marginalizing extremists and by aligning to defend democracy, all of us, meaningful contributions to safeguarding Democratic principles have got to be on all of us between now and 2024. That's the that's the fight we're in, and that fight's only going to get get more important because. And I think in terms of coverage too, if you're a reporter covering this stuff, are you are you helping move people from three to four? I mean, you know, or or is your coverage exposing it and explaining it to people? To, to have them walk away and say, no, that's not me. That's not who I am. But I think all these are important, important points. I can't wait till we, we get the second chapter. And it, actually, the first chapter becomes public, but we, I'm sure we'll be talking about it when it does. Alex, you got anything else? Nope. As you said earlier, we're just about out of time. And, and this is going to be part one. Trig, I'm sure we'll have you back to talk about some of the other findings on this. Um, it, it is a really deep report. Um, hopefully, uh, by the time we publish this episode, we, we should have a link for you to or for you listening to this to take a, a deeper look at this and, and send us and send Trigby questions. So, Joe, other than that, I think that's just about all the time we've got. Hey, thanks, Trigby, for coming on. And thanks, everyone, for listening to that trippy show. You can follow Trigby on Twitter at Trigby, T-R-Y-G-V-E Olson which is O-L-S-O-N. We'll link to more of his findings when they come out. We'll also put a link to his Twitter feed. A reminder that this podcast will always be free and is part of the ResoluteSquare.com media effort to, like I said earlier, um, it's a pro-democracy media effort to, uh, to really 
lay out things like what Trigby's talking about and to make sure our messaging stops the radical right uh, media or at least challenges it. So please subscribe to That Trippy Show and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. You can check out the latest at resolutesquare.com slash trippy. You can always send us a question to thattrippyshow at gmail.com or leave us a question in a review on iTunes. Trigby, thanks so much. I can't wait to see more of this. Yeah, thanks, Joe. And I appreciate all the help with it, too. We'll see you next week, folks. Bye.